0: This podcast may contain content that is graphic and disturbing in nature. Listener discretion is advised.
1: John Keyes needed to urgently send a text message to his daughter, Emily. Although he worked in IT, John didn't know how to, so he asked someone to send her a text message which said, Are you okay? He received a reply back from her saying, I love you guys. He asked where she was and anxiously waited for her reply, but it never came. This is Apple for the Teacher, a true crime podcast. My name is Anna Thomas. Today's episode is called Love You Guys. Emily sent a text saying, I love you guys. What happened? But first a warning, this episode contains mental health, sexual assault, child abuse and suicide. The day of September 27, 2006 was a normal day for the Keyes family of Colorado in the US. Ellen Keyes was taking her 16-year-old twins, Emily and Casey, to school. She dropped them off at the Platte Canyon High School and then went to do some errands. She was at a gas station when the attendant said that he heard some disturbing news while listening to the police scanner. There had been shots fired at her children's school and in particular room 206. Frantic, she rang her husband John, asking him to check the computer and see Emily's schedule for that day. She knew Casey was away on a field trip, but her heart sank when John said Emily was due to be in room 206 that day. John quickly got into his car and drove over to the school, only to find a roadblock. He tried a back road and found other, distraught parents assembled there. Meanwhile, Ellen Keyes had gone to the police station, desperate to get any information, and her worst fears were confirmed. An armed man had entered the school and had taken hostages in room 206. One shot had already been fired and he had warned the police that he also had explosives. But it was the next piece of information which made Ellen's heart sink. The police confirmed that their daughter Emily was one of the hostages. Ellen immediately called John with the news and they were both unable to fathom what they had heard. The town in which they lived was called Bailey and it was only 28 miles from the Columbine School where, seven years earlier, 12 students had been killed in the country's deadliest school shooting. With this grim news confirmed, John was desperate to get in touch with his daughter. Here is what John said happened next. I'm a tech guy, but I look at my cell phone and I've never sent a text message. And I look around and said, Is there anyone here under 30? I need to do a text message. And the reporter from the flume was up there and she looked at the phone and quickly typed in the letters, Are you okay? John was then overjoyed when Emily replied saying, I love you guys. He asked her where she was but never received a reply. We will now go into the sequence of events on that day. The gunman's car arrived at the school at 8.42am and parked in the administration parking lot, then left two minutes later. He then went into the student parking lot and left after 10 minutes. 45 minutes later, the car returned to the student car park. The man stayed in the car for about an hour and then exited at around 11am and entered the school. Room 206 was the English classroom and the teacher was Sandra Smith. At around 11.30, the man walked into the classroom. He was described as wearing a blue hooded sweatshirt and had a backpack. He placed the backpack on a table and then removed a black handgun from his waistband. He began waving it around while instructing everyone to go and stand facing the blackboard. He started asking students for their names and began poking some of them with the gun. He yelled at some of the students to leave the room. Sandra tried to calm the man down, pleading with him not to hurt anyone. Other students then entered the classroom, unaware of what was happening, and he yelled at them to leave. Then all the male students were told to leave, as was the teacher. But Sandra refused to go, saying she was responsible for the students and would not go without them. He informed her that he had an explosive device and would detonate it if she did not leave. Then he quite suddenly fired a shot into a wall. Sandra then complied and left. Here is her account. He set a backpack down at back desk. Uh-huh. I went back and approached him because I didn't recognize him. I asked him what I could help him with. Mm-hmm. And he pulled a gun. You know what out. kind of gun? Handgun? It's a handgun. He yelled. He said, All of you kids, go to the third room and face the blackboard. Uh-huh. And they did. Uh-huh. And I didn't. And he pointed the gun at me. He said, you know, if you don't want to be hurt, just do what I tell you. He said, get out. And if anybody comes back in this room, I have enough explosives in this bag to blow up this school." He then turned off all the lights and told the female students remaining not to tamper with the backpack as it contained explosives. By this time, some of the girls were in distress and sobbing. He took one of them to another wall and then began sexually assaulting her. But when she resisted, he put the muzzle of the gun against her cheek, saying he would kill her if she resisted. Meanwhile, the students who managed to flee raised the alarm and an announcement was heard over the intercom saying code white. All classrooms were put into lockdown. A call was made to 911 and the police were dispatched. Here is the 911 call.
0: 911,
1: what is your emergency? Uh, this is Carol at Platte Canyon. We've got a, somebody with a gun. It's a stranger who we'll walked in the room with a gun, the not stranger. a student. Room 206, upstairs in the English pod. After arriving, the officers made their way to the classroom, noticing that the lights were out. There was a narrow window adjacent to the door of the room and they were able to see the gunman holding the gun to the head of one of the girls. They made the man aware of their presence and instructed him to drop the weapon and release the girl. He refused and instructed them to leave the building or he would detonate the explosives. They remained in their positions, attempting to negotiate with him but he refused to engage in any further conversation the police were able to determine that there were seven female hostages. While this was happening, other police were making their way from room to room evacuating students and teachers. The school had an evacuation plan where teachers would slide green cards under their doors if they were safe and secured. Red cards would be used to indicate if there was a problem in the room. For those rooms with green cards, the police then slid their own Photo identification under the door, which signaled the teacher to unlock the door. In this way, each of the classrooms were able to be evacuated. As the hostage situation progressed, the man displayed periodic fits of rage and threatened to blow up the school. He also continued to sexually assault the girls, but then began releasing some of them until there were only two girls left, and one of these girls was Emily Keyes. The police attempted to make phone contact with him via the classroom phone and the man's mobile, but he refused to speak with them. He also refused to have a police phone dropped into the room. The police were able to get a good view into the classroom as they managed to use a pole mirror which showed the man at the back of the room holding Emily in front of him as a human shield. They also tried to deploy a fiber optic camera but it was approaching nightfall and there was lack of light in the room. The man also became aware of the camera and became highly agitated then refusing to speak further with the police. He then communicated with them through the two remaining girls only. He told the girls to tell them that the crisis would be over at 4 p.m. They asked for some elaboration as to what this meant, but nothing more was forthcoming. It was feared that this would be the time when the explosives would be detonated or when some other violent action would take place. They felt that they had no other choice other than to intervene and attempt a rescue of the girls. The plan was as follows. Entry would be attempted at 3.35pm. But before this, the door of the classroom would be wired to explode and a diversionary concussion grenade would also be employed. The SWAT team who were preparing to enact the forced entry had been able to ascertain that the man was positioned along the far wall of the room. He had Emily in front of him and was holding her head in his left arm with the handgun to the right side of her head. All of their devices were deployed and the SWAT team then rushed forward towards the man's position. One of the SWAT team was able to grab the other girl and rushed her to safety. The man then shot Emily in the right side of her head and was shot three times by the SWAT officers. He was pronounced dead at the scene at 3.57. It was determined that after shooting Emily, he fired a shot to his own head. After not getting a reply from his daughter, John waited anxiously with the other parents, watching the school from a distance, wanting desperately to go and find his daughter. He said, I tried everything with the folks at the roadblock to say, let me in, I need to be closer. And the parents rallied. They said, we've got to get him closer. And the fire guy pulled me closer to the school. There was cheering on the highway from the parents. Then John recounts, The moment the SWAT team made the assault, I heard an explosion, I heard gunfire, and I think I sat down at that point and I said, what the hell is going on? And not long after, he was finally able to see his daughter. His beautiful girl was laying on a gurney, her face covered. John said, they brought Emily out in front of me, 30 yards away maybe. I said, is there anything that would provide her with comfort right now? and he said no, and I knew at that point, they got her on the helicopter, somebody put me in a sheriff's car. The sheriff then picked up Emily's mother. John and Ellen hadn't seen each other during the ordeal. Ellen said, we maybe said five words to each other on the way down, because you hope that this is the miracle. They were then taken to the hospital And Ellen said, it wasn't that tearful, I was so numb, that all the tears came later. Sadly, Emily was pronounced dead at 4.32pm. She had celebrated her 16th birthday only two weeks earlier with her twin brother, Casey. He then arrived at the hospital after being safe on the field trip. Ellen recalls that moment. He came to the hospital with friends later and that's when we were finally able to hug him. That was increasingly important, just touching my son. It was Sheriff Fred Wegener who made the ultimate decision to storm the room. This is what he had to say during an interview. The interviewer asked him, was that the hardest decision that you had to make that day? Hopefully, it was the hardest decision I'll ever make. I was mad, mad that it came to this mad that he entered the school. He broke off the conversation. I just felt I couldn't wait until four o'clock to see what was going to happen. And that has to be a very good difficult decision to make because you know he's in the room with two students. Correct, and he's armed. And you're now thinking about storming the room and anything can happen. Yes, the frustration level was probably at an all-time high right about now. For me, it's gonna beat me up every day because I still have to live with Emily's death. That's nobody else's responsibility. That's mine. But you didn't take Emily's life, Fred. No, but the decision. So the decision is mine. So I have to stay with that. Well, I only know that this community has embraced you and said thank you. Quite the opposite of where you might be in your head. Yeah, it's a great community. The day after the tragedy, The sheriff visited Emily's parents. Here is John's account. The interviewer asked, What did he say to the two of you? John said, I'm sorry. And you hugged him? Absolutely. You say absolutely as if there was no other response. You lost your daughter. I know. This community needs to heal. And I know this guy. I know Fred. It was a horrible outcome, but he was there for my girl and for those other girls. And then Ellen said, And he's known our family for years. Maybe if he did something different, there would have been a different result. But we can play the what-if game all day. We just agree with him that he made the right decision. And here is what they said about the man who perpetrated this horrific crime. The reporter asked, Is there anger at this man who took your daughter? No, it's a dead end. That doesn't matter. That man did a horrible thing. Done. We don't need to focus on the bad. And now, Take a listen to this audio of one of the female negotiators during the crisis.
0: It was uh, Emily and I for the majority of the afternoon. She was certainly the one keeping things calm and talking to, to Stacy Jarvis and uh, allowed everything to keep moving. She was the voice. This despite being assaulted by the gunman and having a gun to her head. Terrible things were going on in that room and had gone in, on in that room and uh, for her to keep herself together the way she did i don't know how she did
1: it now the security of the school is also very interesting the columbine shooting happened seven years earlier and the platte canyon school was opened after that incident so they were able to learn a lot from columbine and incorporate various safety features at the new school the school has a series of pods off the main hallways there are locked doors separating the hallways from the rest of the building. So the siege happened in the English pod, and it's built so that gunmen can't just go from room to room shooting. Each pod is separated from the others. In this case, the man was confined to one section, but quite often the police will have no idea where a gunman may be. And I also thought that the green and red card system was fantastic. When we do lockdowns with kids and they ask, what happens if someone knocks at the door and they say, it's the police? What if it's the gunman? Well, the police sliding their ID under the door eliminates this issue. Isn't that a great idea? And what about the office lady who called 911? You know, I have so much respect for the ladies who work in our school office as they are so often the first line of attack for angry parents but they somehow have to remain calm and diffuse the situation and just listen to the parents and hope for the best. Now, if you are a regular listener of the podcast, you will know that I prefer to focus on the victims, but I came across a part of this story regarding the perpetrator that made me agonise about whether I should include it. So I've decided that I will share it, but I will finish the episode with more about Emily and her family at the end. The day after the tragedy, the perpetrator's family received a 14-page suicide letter from the man. For me, this was very interesting reading as it gave an insight into the man and it was also analysed by the FBI. The FBI report was also very interesting, outlining what the letter revealed about the man. I will first read the suicide letter and then you will hear the analysis. So the man writes, Since you're reading this now, you know I'm gone and some terrible things will be said about me. Some true, some not. This is not a suicide note or a diary. This is my idea about the way things are and why they are. I want to apologize to all of you. I know the way things will end and will hurt many and I'm terribly sorry. Once I knew the way things were going to end up, I thought I would better try to explain the way things were in my mind. I would like to request three final things. Number one, I prefer that this letter be read only by Gary, Joanne, Rebecca and Judy. Number two, I wish to be cremated. I don't want my ashes kept in some urn, no church service, no memorial service and no burial. If you wish, you may dispose of my ashes in the trash. I would like to have them dumped in the mountains, though, maybe up at Jefferson Lake. That is such a pretty spot. My third request will come later. It's so hard for me to write this, to put my feelings down on paper. I think I know why that is, and I'll get into that a bit. I know that awful things will be said about me, and I hope this doesn't cause any pain or hurt to any of you. I'm so sorry about this because I love all of you so much. I would try to see or talk to each of you before things come to an end. I'm sure all of you have noticed over the years that I had problems. On my 21st birthday, I remember thinking about suicide seriously for the very first time. Through my teenage years, I remember thinking if I could just get my life straightened out, by the time I was 21, I might have a normal life. That was not to be. Sometime in my mid to late 20s, I began to lose touch with reality. I would forget things that I had done or wonder if some of my other memories had actually happened. Things got bad in the early 1990s while I was living in Sacramento. There were times my mind would go completely blank. I wouldn't know where I was or what I was doing. Sometimes this would only last one minute, sometimes ten minutes. This was when thoughts and urges began entering my mind. These were easier to control at first, but now seem to run my life, going in and out of my mind at will. I have no idea what life is about. I have no idea why I'm alive. I have no idea what's real and what's not real. I've lately began to wonder why he, your father, chose me to be the one. Do any of you know? Did he ever tell anyone or did I do something wrong as a baby? Don't get me wrong, I'm thankful that none of you had to go through what I did. Since we're on the subject, this is difficult. Some people will say that I may have had a terrible childhood. Well, they couldn't be more wrong. Actually, I had no childhood at all. It was stolen from me, taken before it began, replaced by constant fear and terror. Why would any parent mentally and physically abuse a child? You may not know it, but I believe the mental was the worst. Not knowing where he was or when he would be coming after me, that was the worst. Constant fear of not knowing. School was nice, I was safe at school. For part of the day, I could almost relax. For six or seven hours, I was out of his reach. I'm not sure I can put into words the way it was when he was around. Fear was constant growing up. I got away from the dinner table as fast as I could. I would take a few bites, say I was full and leave. Fear overrode hunger because I could not stand to be in the same room as him. Often we kids would all watch TV in the evening. If he came in and sat down, I would want a few minutes, go to the bathroom, turn the water on or something, then go to my bedroom. Wherever we lived, whichever house we had, I always had a certain spot to go to. It would be in one of the corners, some place where I couldn't be seen if he were walking down the hall. I spent a lot of time sitting and standing in the corners of my bedrooms. The worst, the nightmare, more terrible than all others, was when the two of us were home alone. When that would happen, when he came home or everyone else left, I would quickly go find my unseen corner and stay there until someone else got home. I was always afraid to close the bedroom door as he would know I was in there. I know all of you love him, so I won't go into the details of what happened. If I remained quiet, no noise, no music, not a sound, I was usually safe, but not always. Once in a while, he would call me. As soon as I heard my name, fear would turn into panic and sheer terror. Sometimes it was nothing. He would just want to know where I was, but the terror was still there. Maybe a third to a half of the time that he called me, He would come right for me as soon as he saw me. Terror was then replaced by something I don't think I can put into words. When I would see him coming, after me, I froze. I would shake from head to toe, my stomach in knots and my heart pounding, preparing for his temper to be unleashed on me. I would often wet myself. This was my childhood, my life. Except for fishing with Gary a few times in North Carolina, I have no pleasant memories of growing up. He didn't take those from me. He didn't allow me to have any. I wanted everyone to know the true facts about what happened at the Harley dealer and why. I'm not sure what will happen, but if I have my way, it may just hit the fan. On December the 24th, 2002, I bought the new bike, a 2003 HD Wide Glide. I also purchased a set of aftermarket performance exhaust system, a better carburetor, and several other accessories to be installed before I took delivery. When I picked up the bike, no carburetor had been installed and a defective set of pipes were on the bike. I called and called and all I got was a major runaround. About February or March, I started calling them and yelled and screamed and cussed. That was my mistake. I should not have done that, but it may have been only three or four calls. The accessories that they cheated me out of amounted to between $1,200 and $1,400. I don't remember exactly. I guess because of the phone calls, the HD dealer decided to press charges against me and I was arrested the other day. The papers are in my glove box. My bond was $500 and someone can get that money back from the jail or court. If things go as planned, I will try to make someone at the HD shop pay. Today may have been one of the saddest days of my life. I realized that I may never talk to any of you again and probably never see any of you again. I want all of you to know how much I enjoyed having dinners with you for the holidays, Christmas and Thanksgiving, and even the times I didn't accept it made me feel good that you thought enough about me to ask me to spend holiday dinner with you. I have never owned much and don't own much now. I would like my belongings to go to James if he wants them. My TV stereo equipment, couch, bed, etc. If Gary wants my telescope, he may have it. I also told James that he may have my few remaining guns. My fishing poles are in the Jeep. Maybe Eric would like those. He and I sure had fun fishing up at Jefferson Lake. There is one thing I would like Judy to have if it survived packing. On top of my microwave, there was a glass dish. It belonged to Aunt Leela. I don't know how long she had it, but I got it from her about 20 years ago. It's old and fragile. It's round with a glass base. I hope it didn't get broke. Things are getting pretty close to the end now. I figure about a week is all that I have left. I'll try to call everybody one last time. I may try to visit everyone, but I'm not sure if I could keep back the tears. I know that sounds strange coming from me, so it may be just a phone call. I miss all of you so much already. It's a terrible, hurtful, empty, fearful pain inside me, knowing I will never see any of you again. Please forgive me for the terrible things you have heard or are about to hear. Suicide is sometimes an embarrassment to family members, so for this I truly apologize for any hurt I may cause all of you. To me, suicide is finally a release from an empty and painful life That has never had any meaning for me. I'm tired of living, and for the last 15 years or so, I'm tired of living in pain, constant pain. So, to my sisters, Judy, Joanne and Rebecca, to my brother, Gary, please know that my last thoughts will be of you. My last few breaths, my last few heartbeats will be yours. All my love for each of you. My last moment will be painless. And finally, request number three. I wish for all of you to get along with each other. No more arguing over petty things, and they are petty things if you think about it. Please get along. Life is so short. Please hug each other for me. I love all of you so much. I'm staying in the Mallory Hotel in room 10 if anyone wants my last few personal items. I meant to call everyone today the 26th, but I couldn't handle it. I called Judy first, but it was too emotional. Alright, so now let's look at the FBI analysis of the letter. They noted that there was a high proportion of I's used in the letter, but a low proportion of We's. This could indicate someone who is extremely preoccupied and or has a lack of identification with others. He also used a high proportion of Me's, which would indicate he felt passive, about his situation or that he was the object of victimization. Much of his language was also negative, indicating that he had lost touch with reality. He was also characterized as being highly neurotic and having low extroversion and low agreeableness. People with these can be described as follows. They are gloomy pessimists. They face a dark and dreary life. There is little that cheers them, and much that causes them anguish and distress. Especially under stressful circumstances, they may succumb to periods of clinical depression, and even when they are functioning normally, they often find life to be hard and joyless. And they are also temperamental. They are easily angered and express anger directly. They may fly into a rage over a minor irritant, and they can seethe with anger for long periods of time. They are deeply involved in themselves and take offense readily, and they often overlook the effects of their anger on others. They may be prone to physical aggression or verbal abuse. And all these characteristics can be seen in how he handled the whole situation with the motorbike that he bought. And these sorts of people are also competitors. These people tend to view others as potential enemies, they are weary and distant. They prefer respect to friendship and guard their privacy jealously. When interacting with them, it is wise to allow them space they feel they need. And now here is the FBI's overall summary of the perpetrator. Overall, the document reflects the writings of a significantly depressed individual whose mental state may have been deteriorating rapidly. Once the author decided on his course of action, he appears to obtain some, at least overt, relief from making that decision. Of particular interest is what factors affected the author's decision to target a school and, specifically, Flat Canyon High School. While the stated grievance in the letter is with the motorcycle dealer, why did he decide to attack the school? Was it mainly because of what the author perceived as a lower security posture and target of opportunity or because it was a school. Now after all of the stories that I've covered on this podcast, I would certainly agree that schools are just seen as soft targets which are used as a way to express people's hurt and grievances. But I also do understand this because these sorts of people, they keep their hurts bottled up and then one day it just explodes. Now when I first read the letter, it was clear That he had experienced considerable verbal and physical abuse as a child, but it's not clear if there was sexual abuse. When he says, I don't want to go into what happened, he may be referring to the sexual abuse. And although he can discuss everything else, this just appears to be not a place that he wants to go to. So it seems that right until the end, he just could not bring himself to reveal these details. Now I'd like to dedicate the rest of this episode to Emily and her family. As you would imagine, Emily's funeral was attended by many teachers and students from her school, as well as the police officials who responded to the siege. The funeral began so beautifully with Emily's own last words, I love you guys. Here is what Emily's twin brother Casey said, Emily was a part of my life and a part of all of our lives. That part was torn away and stolen this Wednesday. But the part of us that can never be torn away and never be stolen is the love and strength that keeps us together. And her mother also read out a card that Emily had once given her, which said, Happy birthday, Mummy. I love you so much. I hope I can be the best daughter to you. You deserve it. And Sheriff Fred Wegener, who coordinated the police response, said the following. This is the hardest thing that I'll ever have to face and I want the Keys family to know that if I could trade places with Emily, I would do it in a heartbeat. This wasn't supposed to happen. Going into a school wasn't supposed to happen. I hope I do this community proud and I hope you'll let me know if I don't. And a youth pastor added, Let that go. You need to let it go. There's nothing you can do. We need to go forward in Emily's name And Emily's honor, and turn this random act into random acts of kindness. Let's live and love extravagantly in ways that don't make sense, in ways that make other people wonder what you're up to. Now, after tragedies like this one, we often hear how families go on to do wonderful things in the memory of their loved ones. And Emily's family did just this they formed a foundation called the I Love You Guys Foundation. Its aim is to promote school safety and create a common language and standard response protocols between first responders, students and staff during campus emergencies. Emily's parents say that they live by a special quote which allows them to work to keep their daughter's memory alive and to help them keep the foundation going. The quote says, you don't choose tragedy You can choose your response. And I also read about another wonderful initiative that the family started not long after the tragedy. Only 10 days after their daughter's death, her family organised a motorcycle event in her honour, which saw a convoy of 5,000 motorbikes riding from the Columbine High School to Emily's School. It came to be known as the Columbine to Canyon Ride this event would go on to be held every year for the next 10 years however in 2015 at the 10th ride emily's family made an announcement that the ride would be the last one here is what her father john said organizing the parade is also a very difficult task for both me and ellen last october we asked the love you guys foundation board of directors to make a difficult decision We asked the board to declare the 10th annual Emily's Parade as the last one. It was a tough conversation. A tough decision, but I think the board made the right decision. It could be said that the I Love You Guys Foundation wouldn't exist today without the support shown from the very first Emily's Parade. While Emily's Parade has always been an amazing day, the planning is an all-year commitment. With foundation programs in over 15,000 schools in the US and Canada, we're focusing our resources on program development and expansion. It's an exciting time. We're seeing state-level recommendations for our programs across the country. This tiny organization from Bailey has an international footprint, and Emily's Parade was the catalyst. You know our community is truly a gift. And folks in this community have given us their greatest gifts, the gift of time, the gift of support, the gift of love. Emily's parade has been a symbol of those gifts, and Ellen and I have cherished those gifts. So now let's hear from the parents themselves in this audio.
0: Losing Emily is is a tragedy, but I think they did everything right. They did everything right as far as they could control it and there are some things you simply cannot control it's been incredibly healing for me in not carrying anger or blame i think it's important for us to to focus on the positive coming out um this horrible thing happened I, we can't change that a coward with a gun walked into a school and he stole emily from us and 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 If the intent was to damage the community as much as possible, um, any other response on our part would have let that coward steal some more from us. And I'm going to do everything I can to prevent that. Emily's gift was a voice. We can talk about this.
1: Now, after hearing this story, I wonder if you recognise that it was similar to another episode that I've done, which was the shooting in the Amish schoolhouse. While I was researching this story, I really noticed the similarities between the two events. In the Amish story, a man takes girls hostage in their schoolhouse. All the boys and teachers were allowed to go. He had planned to sexually assault them, but he hadn't. And they knew this because he had sexual lubricant in his belongings. He had also lined the girls up against the blackboard and he'd also written a suicide note. So I just thought they were so eerily similar. Then I read that the Amish siege had occurred only five days after today's story. Can you believe it? So what do you think? Is this just a coincidence or was the Amish shooting a copycat? For me, there are just way too many similarities for it not to be a copycat. I just think it was very poignant that Emily's last words were, I love you guys, which became such words of comfort for her family. Can you imagine if those last words were something awful about what was happening to her and her parents had those words to remember instead? And I would also imagine that her father would still have that text message on his phone and read it from time to time, which is what I would do. It's such a hard thing for me to reconcile what this man did against the fact that he had such an awful childhood. And while abused children don't all go on to abuse others, it does make me think that more needs to be done to provide support services for child abuse. In my own opinion, there is just so much waste in government spending. Just look at how much money goes into things like sending people into space. To me, this is a total waste of precious money that should be going into what's really important which in this day and age is mental health and the health of children. As teachers, we see the outcomes of children who have been neglected and abused. My school, for instance, doesn't even have a school psychologist as a basic start. Yet we spent $50,000 on a staff room makeover. It's all about priorities. Every school deals with children from impoverished and abused backgrounds yet we just don't have the resources to help these children. I'm not a trained social worker or a psychologist, yet this is what I'm called on to do time and time again. And now, just before we finish, you will be able to find Emily on the Find a Grave website, which I've mentioned before. It's a place where you can share some thoughts and leave a message for Emily. So just Google findagrave.com and type in her name. At the end of this episode, you will hear a song which was played at one of Emily's bike rides and people are releasing balloons into the sky. So now, let's preview the next episode. It's called Scouts' Honour. The Girl Scouts went on a scout camp. What happened? And to end this episode, I will leave you with this quote which is very relevant to this story. Hurt people hurt people. Whole people heal people. Bye for now and remember to be a good apple.